Welcome to episode 236 of No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg, joined for a special original recipe. It feels special being back with you, Courtney Nguyen, <laughs> even if this is our default. But it's been a while since we did one of these old school, just the two of us, especially over Skype, which I feel like is weirdly our natural environment instead of being in the same room. But it's it's great to hear your voice on the other end of the microphone. I know. We are both like weirdly excited about this because I have not spoken to Ben for a while outside of text messages and things like that. So mm-hmm. just hearing the melodious tones okay. of uh, the Rothenberg scale in my ears is uh, is putting me in a good mood. So we're, we're ready to rock. Well, that makes very few people who I think look forward to this voice, but <laughs> I appreciate you being one of them. Uh, we are recording this on the evening, Sunday evening after the World Tour Finals ended in London. I know they're not called that anymore, but I hate ATP Finals as a name because, like, oh, he made his first ATP Final. This is a, it's confusing. Anyway, London just ended. The champion was Stefano Tsitsipas, who was qualified for the first time. We're going to start with this because it's actually timely, and we don't get to do very much timely on NCR anymore. Stefano Tsitsipas won London, Courtney. This is a... Seemed like a natural progression of his glow-up year. I mean, glow-up maybe even, like, 13 months ending with him winning the next-gen finals in Milan last year. And even before that, he had a really great year to get to like from like 92 to 15 in 2018, roughly. And then made semis of Australia this year, had a bit of a, a slump, made final of Madrid, and had a bit of a slump in uh, final of Dubai also. And then a bit of a skid or slump between like Wimbledon and the U.S. hardcourt swing. But now he's pretty much back and ending on a high note. And just what do you, what do you, I don't know how much of you watched this week in London, but what do you just think of Steph and what it means for tennis to have Stephanos and all his Stephanosness, um, kind of be <laughs> the, the guy holding the trophy as the, as the picture fades to black on the ATP tour year? It's a lot of Stephanos. Yeah. Um, as I was joking throughout the week, I wasn't so much watching the ATP finals as I was watching Steph. So mm-hmm. if Steph played or Medvedev played, then I was generally watching more Steph than, than Daniil. But, um, but yeah, I mean, he's somebody that I, I enjoy watching his tennis. I enjoy his personality and his weirdness. And the only way that I can say it is dorkiness. I think that yeah. he's a dork. I think that, you know, and, and what makes dorks great, and I say this as one who was one, uh, and has maybe grown out of it into a nerd, but, um, but I definitely was a dork at, at one point in my life is just like, you're kind of completely unaware that, that, that you are one, <laughs> you know, you're, there's no, um, yeah, there's no, there's no sensor on you. There's no sense of like, oh, I'm weird or anything like that. And Steph just is Steph. And I personally really, really appreciate that. He doesn't, you know, fall into the same mold as kind of like the bro ATP exactly. or even like the statesman ATP. He's just Stephanos. Like, and he just marches to the beat of his own drummer. It's, I could only imagine, cause I obviously don't cover the ATP, but if I did cover the ATP, like Steph would be my favorite player to interview because I would not know what was going to come out of his mouth in response to any question I asked him, like whether it was the most simplest thing of like, Steph, can you please like talk through your match or Steph, like what are your goals for the season? You know, what do you think of the meaning of the universe? Like whatever, like his, the way his mind works, I think is fascinating. And the things that he kind of comes up with are really, really interesting. So 
in that way, I think that it's it's super great that that Steph kind of finished his season the way that it did, especially after starting the way that it did, making the semifinals in Australia, and you know, as you said, kind of going through up and down patches. But it seemed like he found himself again in in the later half of the season, and not half, but at least in the the throughout the Asian swing, the last quarter of the season. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think he's good for tennis, and I know I was talking to my parents about this because they were like, "Do people like him?" And I was like, that's a complicated question. <laughs> I don't I don't know how to definitively answer that. I don't think he's a fan favorite, but I don't think he's hated. I don't think within the tennis family, he's like, oh, we love Steph. I don't think that that's the overwhelming feeling towards Steph, but I don't think that it's the opposite of that either. Um, I think that in a lot of ways, people are just trying to figure the kid out. And yeah. I think that that's a really... Um, a really fun dynamic. It reminds me a lot of maybe like one or two years ago with Naomi on the WTA side. Yeah. Um, but the difference between the two, as I was telling my father, is that Naomi knows that she's uncomfortable and awkward in situations and Steph has no clue. And those, that's a very different like mentality to have. But um, all that is to say, I was really happy to see the level that he was able to play throughout. Even the, the loss to, to Nadal, I think, was a great match. Um, and then against a team, it just felt like once he lost that like break lead in the third set and team re- reeled off like three straight games that like Dominic was going to just kind of roll uh, through the title uh, to the title. And he, he came back and then again in the tie break had a 4-1 lead and then team busted back and Stefanos was able to to still, you know, kind of keep his head. And and I respect that. I mean, I like the kid. I, I don't think that's a secret. So, yay. Steph won. <laughs> I agree with a lot of what you said. First of all, I mean, like in no particular order, the Naomi analogy or comparison, I think is always, we've said this for before, but it's super apt. I think also because they're both sort of these people who, again, with varying levels of self-awareness sort of revel in being different and are also like seen as being fairly sensitive. Um, but at the same time, like you should never underestimate either of their toughnesses. Because, like, yeah. yes, they're both, like, kind of, like, the one who's, like, the Ferdinand the Bull, you know, off sniffing flowers, and he's supposed to be doing that. In some ways, Steph especially Still gives off that vibe. But, um, but like, when pushed, like, he's absolutely, like, can scrap and fight and go toe-to-toe with anybody. Yeah, the match against Rafa was a dead rubber for Steph. He was already qualified. I think he might have already secured the group, too. And he went, like, two hours, 53 minutes with Nadal. 7-5 in the third when he, like, didn't need to. And at the end, he was, like, he said something after the match, like, yeah, you know, I was left a little bit in the tank. And I sort of believed him in some way, but at the same time, like, it's hard to go 253 with Nadal and be casual about it. So, anyway, that was, um, yeah, so that was impressive. And, yeah, I I'd agree with what you said at the beginning, too. Like, I think, Steph, it's been very interesting and captivating for me following Steph pretty closely for the last 18 months or so on tour. And just sort of watching him sort of find himself on the tour and see how he fits in or doesn't fit in with different things. And at the same time, I feel like he's always managed to be pretty authentic to himself. I've never felt like he ever really tried. Maybe the Labor Cup week is a sort of interesting exception and it's an interesting sort of case study for him because it was the most intense social interactions he had to have with the other top (laughs) players, um, including like Zverev, who he's been kind of, uh, you know, an existential opposite of for a while just very different energies um but it has been existential <laughs> maybe a strong <laughs> like word it's been like pretty actual non-theoretical 
thing. But anyways, sure. continue. And whatever it's been between the two of them, I guess, I mean, it's just like, I think that Steph, yeah, he never wants to seem like he's trying to be somebody he's not. He's never once gone bro-y in any way that he could have. And the way that, like, there is this very much this um, sort of established archetype for how an ATP player should act on court and off court. And especially off court, Steph is just, you know, not doing that. He's all the same, you know, right after the Labor Cup, even after his week of being with the guys and being one of them, he posted like within 48 hours of that week, a video of him dancing around his hotel room to One Direction and, you know, talking about how much fun he had and, and, and explain. And also it was very sweet. He was talk, replaying clips and talking to his parents about having had alcohol for the first time at the post Labor Cup party. And just Bless. how different that was for him. And there was another clip that came out. He sort of Instagram lived his trophy celebrations with his team uh, today after winning in London. And there was another thing with him like drinking champagne. And it's just like, it's hard to describe exactly how he was doing it wrong. But he <laughs> got handed a glass of champagne like for a toast and then took like an immediate sip of it, like way too big a gulp and like reacted badly to that. And then like, and like within like his, after like three sips, there was a toast. And it was just like, it was all just like completely didn't know what he was doing, but it, in a very sort of charming way that he's, and I, you know, a lot of props to his family and his team generally for giving him the space to sort of develop on his own. And I just hope that he can keep that level of, authentic authenticity himself because you know I, he's kept it this long that i have faith that he can and now he's already validated you know whatever drummer he's going along to by winning this title um so I, i'm optimistic that he'll be able to stay in his own way and you know and grow and develop and certainly naomi has grown a lot um since she was the more awkward newcomer onto tour i think she's really in her first full year as a top player, uh, which was 2019, I think she really, you know, embraced that and seemed much more comfortable with the, by the end of it with a lot of different aspects of that, that life. So, yeah, so that's all super encouraging for me for Steph. And I, and I hope that people who are, you know, bringing up young tennis players can see him and sort of understand the possibilities for what kind of personality types and what kind of behavior types and what kind of social types can, can thrive in tennis. He just really expands, I think, the, the, our understanding of what a, top tennis player can and should be in terms of their personality. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, going back to like the comparisons with Naomi, it's, I hope that, you know, the, not the ATP organization, but the ATP tour, like the, the players and whatever, just as you were saying, just kind of allow him to be him and, and just kind of appreciate what he is and just acknowledge what he isn't and, and not force him into roles that, that, um, that obviously they would want, but, but aren't authentic to him. And the example that I would give is, is I was talking to like a veteran player uh, this summer and they were saying, you know, um, <laughs> this is all in the context of like the younger players and things like that of like, Oh, you know, the, they were just venting, but they were just like, Oh, the younger players, they have no respect. They, they, you know, don't respect the older players, et cetera, et cetera, in the locker room. And the only exceptions are There's a women's player. And, yeah. You're saying. Yes. Yeah, so a women's player. Sorry. I don't know why I'm being weird about pronouns, but she was saying that, um, you know, the only exceptions are Ash and Dasha Kasatkina and Naomi. Um, and then she gave her a, a shout out to Swiatek, the Polish kid. And I was just like, well, and 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 her trainer kind of turned around in the middle of the conversation was like, well, hold on. Like, Naomi never talks to you. Like, he, you know, they were just like, 
that doesn't make sense. And she said, no, no, no. Like she, she doesn't talk, but like she's incredibly respectful. Like we all know that, like, you know, and, and I think that that's been something that I've definitely seen on the WTA side of like, as Naomi kind of does her thing and, you know, yeah, she's not the most social person. And yeah, she's not the most naturally social in social situations such as draw ceremonies or, um, you know, I hung out in the green room for the um, uh, at the WTA finals before the players walk out to the gala. So it's just the top eight singles players just kind of hanging out. Um, she's not the most social. She knows that. I know that. Everybody knows that. But nobody ever see- reads into that um, awkwardness as being like diva ish. Like mm-hmm. at least the players I've talked to, like they're like, no, we don't think that she think she doesn't do that because. She thinks that she's better than us. She just doesn't because that's just not who she is. And so I think in a lot of ways on the tour, the WTA tour, the players have kind of given Naomi her space to just be Naomi, um, which has been kind of a beautiful thing to see, especially this year in 2019, given everything that she was kind of going through. Um, so I would hope that for the ATP in 2020, it would be kind of the same thing with Steph because he's going to march to his own like Tycho drummer, like it's just never <laughs> going to make sense. Um, and he's going to say things that sound weird and he's going to be weird in the locker room and all that. And it's okay. Like it's all harmless. I don't think that he means anything by it. He's not trying to like act better than somebody else or like whatever. He's just like saying what's on his mind. Um, so in that way, I, I just really hope that they give Steph the space to just be Steph. Cause he's a, he's a special flower. And I don't mean that in like a, I know it sounds very patronizing the way I say it, but I actually don't mean it that way. Like I really do hope that people just like let him be him. Cause I think that he's a very special guy. And uh, shout out to Dominic team also among the top guys, including the team Europe labor guys. And even after this match today, team has been like super sweet and like accommodating with Steph and his Stephness. It seems like over the past few months, especially was always like the most sort of friendly, easygoing guy with Steph on the bench. I think both of them, I don't remember exactly the schedule of who played when, but they were together on the bench a lot at Labor Cup and teams seemed to be the one who was sort of, you know, extending a olive branch or whatever um, to, to Steph the most easily. And, and team in general is that kind of guy on the tour. We talked about him as in the last show I did with Ricky about being one of the guys who, you know, should get the ATP Sportsmanship Award at the end of this year. Um We'll see if it ever Good episode, by the way. I oh, finally listened you. to it yesterday. It was great. Thank you. Loved um, loved the sudden realization that Novak won two slams. That was, was great, beautiful. right? How? Because <laughs> like we, we, Ricky and I had gone to lunch like before at the diner near my house. and or the, Love the diner. Great. And talked about, like, okay, the episode went over things. We were like, okay, player of the year. like that's And he was like, well, it's Rafa. And I was like, he's won two slams. And I was like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for some reason, I just went along with it and never questioned it until we were like already done with that segment, pretty much. <laughs> and yeah, so that was glad we didn't like redo that over because it just I think it shows because yeah, I loved I don't it. Know. It was honest. It, yeah, yeah, it, it was good. So congrats to Novak again on his second slam this year. Team's been you're right, and and as you and Ricky said, like he's he's a guy that I would love to see win the sportsmanship award on the ATP side. Like, good dude, you know. Just kind of going through the motions outside of being kicked out of a press conference room. But outside of that, like, he's he's pretty chill. Yeah, he's pretty chill his besides his what the hell moment. Um, <laughs> what the hell? What the hell? Well, I can leave also then or whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I watched it, it so many times. It was a great, great sequence. <laughs> um, 
team, yes, yeah, so the team, also team just Encore this week in London had an excellent week beating in his first two round hour matches beating Federer and then Djokovic really sort of setting the tone for the week, which was an interesting and team in general, I think really emerged as someone who should be considered a threat, you know, at least all but one month of the calendar. I mean, all hard courts now seem friendly to him. He's playing really well and pretty fast indoor hard courts the last couple weeks in uh, London and Vienna. And so, and he won Beijing, I believe also. So he's, and India Wells was a very, very slow hard court. So I didn't read that much into that particular win when it happened. But I can back that up with a lot more hard court stuff. I mean, team should be going into Australia with a lot of confidence. He can do big things there and same with New York next year. Um, he, he had a weird U.S. Open this year where he's sick the week before and just kind of didn't seem like he ever believed in his first round match against Thomas Fabiano. And then he had like a weird kind of like, really low confidence kind of quitty match almost in the first round of Wimbledon this year against Sam Querrey, which is a tough first round draw at Wimbledon, no doubt about it, but he just didn't compete all that well compared to what I usually see from team in that match. So, but hopefully, you know, he's, he's done everything. He's won Stuttgart once before, I think beating Federer in the final. So he, he should know that he can um, win on all surfaces and, and he seems like somebody who's getting there. And so it's, it was interesting sort of week in London because the last, the final three players left uh, after Federer lost in the semifinals were, Zverev, team, and Tsitsipas, and the big three, you know, still end the year at one, two, and three, with the order being Nadal, Djokovic, Federer for the first time. They've kind they finished in all but one of the possible permutations in the top three, which I think is kind of fun over their time. Uh, and there's sort of musical chairs at the top, but yeah, um, I don't know. Do you, did you see this week as any sort of torch passing, or is there too many false alarms for that to get take this one week seriously? Um, it depends on, I mean, if people are going to continue to, you know, value the slams more than, than what you do on the tour, if so long as best of five is, is a thing, obviously that's, a, I mean, that's the biggest difference between obviously the men's tour and the women's mm. tour is just that like at the slams where people value very much what you do at the slams, right? That there's a different um, system for the guys and there is for the girls. So for us, like on the WTA side, like I can look at like the tour level and I can extrapolate extrapolate it onto the slam level and vice versa, right? Because best of three Usually. is best of three. You know, like I mean, yes, there's there's more pressure at the slams, but at the same time, you get a day off, which is something that doesn't exist on the tour level. So, on the whole, you're not going to see a ton of um, variance, I think, from the 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 slam level versus the tour level, so long as the people who are winning the slams play a bunch. That's the mm. Serena caveat. Yeah. But on the men's side, you might not see that sort of um, balance because best of five does make a difference. I mean, can Dominic team do what he did against Novak Djokovic in best of five versus best of three, which is just paint lines and go for broke and just hit the absolute shit out of the ball? I don't know. Maybe, Maybe. he can. He did in Paris this year. Sure. That was a weird match, but yeah. True. Yeah, but it was weird. Um, so, you know, you never know. So, so in that way, I don't necessarily envy the ATP because you do create this kind of cognitive, the, this kind of, um, I don't know what the, the phraseology would be, but like kind of like two realities, right? Like because the big three do what they do at the slams, which is the, the tournaments that fans and pundits value more. Um, then they are elevated at a level that, you know, maybe if you're, you know, one of the younger ones like team or mainly team. And then maybe last year's Vera, 
are doing on the, the tour level, like people don't value it as much, but maybe that's not fair. I don't know. But I don't know if it was a passing of the torch because it was best of three is my point. Like if you were to play a best of five, give the dudes a day of rest, like these old dudes who are in, on canes and growing white hairs, uh, a day of rest between matches and play best of five. And maybe, maybe the situation's a little bit different and maybe that balances things out and you don't have these sorts of results. That being said, I hope it's a, I hope it's a torch passing. Um, I hope that it, it at least imbues these, not necessarily next geners because some of them aren't by definition of the ATP, but like Team's this not, next yeah. generation of players, lowercase next gen, um, that they, they, they now believe that this is their time and there's no reason to believe that it's not and, and that they take these opportunities and especially look at Steph who was right, the youngest player in London. Yeah. At 21, right? And he was the first qualifier for the ATP uh, Next Gen Finals. But it, you take him, and, and he beat, what, Medvedev. He took Rafa to a tough three sets. He then beat Roger and then beats team. I mean, that dude should come into 2020 thinking that he could, you know, slay Goliath. I mean, that that should be his mentality for sure. Yeah, and it's, it's tough. And we've seen on the ATP a couple of high-profile cases in the last couple of years of guys really not continuing their strong finishes. And it is tougher maybe on ATP because the season is so long, you know, and you don't have the same off-season thing. I mean, the most, odd, the most glaring example is Jack Sock, who had his really great finish to 2017 and then came out of the making, you know, winning Bercy and making the semis of London and then came out of the gates in 2018 te- dead on his feet or just terrible or out of shape or whatever. And he, his career never recovered. He's obviously the most extreme example um, and then, but even someone like Grigor, who won the title that year, um, came out pretty slow the next year. And Zverev won the title last year uh, in London and didn't have a, by his standards, not a great 2019 really until he qualified for London and did pretty well in London. But before that, it was not a year with many highlights by his standards. Um, so yeah, so uh, I, it, it's tough to know. But I, what I do like about this week is that there's been this sort of question of will the next gen pass the big three simply because the big three just get old and fade away or will they come and take it from them? And at least for this one week, it did seem like it was the younger guys stepping up. Like the big three were all like, they weren't that bad this week per se. I mean, Federer was awful on break points in the semifinal against Tsitsipas, but for the most part, these were not Par like, for the course. Right. <laughs> yes. That's on. Brand I mean, that's Federer. like a weird thing to like tag him on. Like, yeah. like that's what you do. But, uh, but yeah, but it wasn't like they just sort of pulled out or gave walkovers or it was like an empty field and they took advantage of it. No, this was the big three all in attendance and all playing and all healthy and just not getting it done against the younger guys. And team especially just came up really impressively on that. So I'll be interested to see. Now after this week, I think it's more likely than not. Ricky and I talked about this too. But if more likely than not that we'll get a, num- a new Grand Slam champion in 2020. I mean, between Zverev, Tsitsipas team and Medvedev I don't I would be surprised if all of them went over in 2020 on slams I just would have to think one of them will break through and below them I don't I don't know if anybody else is coming I mean within the London field Berrettini felt like a big step down from those four guys in the number eight spot but uh yeah I mean with all due respect to Matteo Berrettini like oh it was I mean I know the points Yeah, I mean, I know the points are what the points are and yada, yada, yada. But, like, I don't think that anybody thinks that he's one of the top eight players in the world. 
Like, mm. do you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't super surprising that, like, his – that he was exposed, I guess, in London. No, that wasn't surprising. But, yeah, I, I think that – I'm not sure – I think that there's a huge gap between seven and eight. I'm not sure who is clearly better than him to be number eight. I mean, maybe Nish- a fully healthy peak Nishikori, but that's like a very hypothetical I mean, Nishikori, thing. a Molfis. I mean, we're just talking Isner about or something. Yeah, I don't know. right. You know, I'm just talking about like what our sense is as opposed to, yeah. you know, Offering points the, and yeah. how well they do and like whatever. Like, yeah, I mean, I put Isner in there, Molfis, like Vavrinka. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of players that I would put there and and into that eight slot and think that they would have a better shot of winning a match, uh, like than Bertini or at least like making the, you know, so, you know, but I mean, Hey, it's like I said, it's a, it's a reward for, for being there and he absolutely deserves to be there, but I don't, you know, you, you always get nervous about those situations where, you know, one of the, the, the players who qualified last, like kind of gets blown out and then, you create this like big golf, but, um, but I don't, I mean, I don't think that that happened necessarily here. I mean, I think that people kind of knew kind of like how Mateo got there. Yeah. And I think he actually, you had, know, he did have, I think by the numbers, like the lowest ranking to- point total of any qualifier in London in a long time. And so I think people knew that coming in that he was sort of like, there was a bigger gap. And yeah. And anyway, his year was incredible that Mateo Berrettini, who Ricky was saying sure, the last yeah. show, he like had barely heard of a year ago. Um, is now a London player is, is incredible for him and an amazing year for Italian tennis. And I'll get to Yannick Sinner later, but just, it was a good save for them. Save, save the Sinner. That's <laughs> uh, <laughs> very religious. Um, uh, the one other London thing I wanted to discuss and just cause I, I just found it like a really interesting moment. And obviously it played out on Twitter messily um, and on TV too. Cause I know that at least the American TV broadcast acknowledges later, but it was the whole Zverev, thing um and I'll, i don't know exactly how to start but oh, i'll start by saying when zara was playing Sitsipas, um i was watching the tennis channel feed and they came back from a commercial uh sort of excited or you know like uh not the word not excited it's not the right word but sort of like animated a bit about how during the changeover they had seen uh zverev you know reaching into his bag and like sort of semi-discreetly swiping or tapping at an electronic device which they assumed was his phone um and they're saying like wow that's like a you know the chair didn't say anything but it's an interesting moment he's on his phone it's obviously not allowed um and so i i you know said like that was a nice catch by them to sort of pick up on that because it i mean it hadn't been that there was a commercial airing during then so i hadn't had a chance to see it but it was still an interesting moment to see what appeared to be like a fairly obvious rule violation there um and so i tweeted a short video of uh, him doing it and someone shared that he'd been doing it in a previous match before as well. And then a ton of Zverev fans where I mentioned saying that this was obviously him using um, his diabetes monitor because how, because he has diabetes and everyone should know this, that he's had type, type one diabetes and has these various accessories and, is clearly what he's doing, and they produced all sorts of, in the way that they're clearly, the Zvera fans are very clearly, when you saw when I saw them sort of in action as a group, a younger group of people who are very internet savvy, and they quickly produced all sorts of receipts in the form of, you know, various social media photos or practice court photos of him with various um, diabetes accessories around him, 
And uh, yeah, so that was their response. And then it's interesting, though, because Varev has been asked in interviews directly and repeatedly about the diabetes thing before, and he's always said no, or that he um, it doesn't. He said he doesn't have diabetes. He said that outright before, um, even if apparently there's this evidence conflicting with that. Um, and and he said in the interview, and he got asked in his press conference in that London match, like, what were you doing in your bag? And he sort of said, I don't know. And I think it was just touching a water bottle or something. And ATP later put out a statement clarifying that Zverev had not broken any rules, and they they were sure that Zverev hadn't broken any rules, which basically just meant he was not using a phone. Um, I don't even know what to discuss on this per se. I just think it was like a really sort of, I was thinking about it a lot this week. I thought it was a really sort of interesting an odd sort of conundrum and I'm, you know, because I understand it, cause it, it looked, and I had, had no familiarity previously with the sort of diabetes monitor device type thing that his fans believe he was using this touchscreen diabetes thing. I did not know those existed. And yeah, I don't know. It's just a weird, I'm ha- and I'm happy to give and understand his decision not to say anything about it or to keep his medical stuff private. But at the same time, then his fans were doing the opposite of that and sort of outing it at the same time while being mad that we didn't know about this thing he never talked about. So I found that sort of tough to reconcile. I don't even know where I'm going with this, Corny, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to, and I'm happy to now, now that it sort of seems like more of an open secret, I guess. I don't know. Just as a reporter, when you have the person who's the, you have him doing this thing on court, which seems worthy of observation and comment and then not, acknowledging it but there's this other layer of things i don't know and i'm like i hopefully this is like a one-time issue that people now everyone's sort of up to speed on it but there had never been a way to be before it was a good example of how like fans often know more than media and stuff and the value of following fans who are up on these things but anyway i don't know do you have any thoughts on this <laughs> i just need to sort of talk my way through it i don't even think that coherently no, you did. You did. Um, yeah, no, it, it, it's obviously a complicated situation. I mean, I, because while we can uh, conceptually um, understand, yes, you know, players medical history is is private and yeah. um, there is no obligation to make it public to the media. But then there is kind of like the lawyer side of me that comes in and says, but you made it a part of the media the minute that you checked your allegedly checked your your blood sugar levels on tv like at that point it is now public yeah Yeah, like you have now made it at issue which means that we can now ask about it like that is like a basic legal thing (laughs) like and and yes and obviously this is not a legal situation but that's just how my mind works like you've now made it an issue so we can now ask about it. I don't know what the ATP rule is. Like I have always been under the um, the understanding that that you cannot use an electronic device um, that transmits like on court. I mean, we're not talking about iPhone or phone or anything. I mean, it could be anything. Um, so I don't know. Uh, but yeah, that was always my understanding. Um, and maybe he had some exemption I'm or some sort of understanding, but yeah, yeah. sure. But, but it does seem to me that when it becomes a thing that is publicly used and pe- it gets caught and then becomes a, um, a topic of conversation that at that point, not at that point, but you know, before that, it then becomes an issue. Like it then becomes a thing that you are kind of required to comment on. And the tour is required to comment on because you've now made it, you know, part of the public record. So 
in that way, it's weird. I totally agree with you that this is the value in in following fans of players Mm -hmm. like who like that is their player, because with all due respect, I do not watch every single second of every single Sasha Zverev match. I really like Andy Murray and I really like, uh, you know, Steph Sitsipas and whatever. I don't watch every single second of their entire being. I just don't do it for whatever reason. So if you do and you pick something up, then yeah, absolutely. There's value to that. Um, and in that way, it, it's great. And that's why I think a lot of us do it. Um, you know, understanding that we have to vet it accordingly. Oh yeah. Um, against journalistic standards, but, but you know, you, it's, it's basically like a tip box, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, like, Oh, we, I saw this, don't know what it means, but you know, and then we, we, we sort it out, but yeah, I mean, it, I think at this point for Sasha, he's going to have to comment it, comment on it at some point. He is too big of a a name player and he is the future of the ATP tour. He's a potentially, I mean, not potentially. I think that I would, I would put money on it. Like he's a future number one, uh, which means that he's a future, you know, leader of the ATP tour and face of the ATP tour. He's going to have to comment on it. You and know, that- like if he needs to, you know, buy time to, to kind of figure out what he wants to say, sure, but there's nothing wrong with it. Like, it's just not, it's just, I don't want to be like flippant about it because it's not flippant, but it's also, I mean, it's, it's diabetes. Like, it's, I, it's okay. This is, I gotta say, like, and I have friends, you know, one friend, one close friend growing up who had diabetes and other friends, you know, in the Same, press room who I know. Who it. It's, yeah. So, yeah. and so just knowing, that that's that's sort of and I remember and I was the one actually I, I'm pretty sure I was the one who in 2016 um, asked Zverev about the because there was a when Sharapova tested positive for meldonium one of Zverev's former coaches came out with something saying oh yeah Zverev used to take meldonium also because he has diabetes and it was what he you know used to treat it and I was thinking maybe that and I remember asking about that article or about meldonium and stuff and, and the diabetes in, in Dean Wells 2016 and Zvera vehemently denied that there was any truth to anything in that report, including that he had diabetes. And maybe maybe it being connected with doping stuff is why it's what stigmatized it for him or something. And again, it's it's his choice, I guess, um, what he does and doesn't reveal. But I just I, I it didn't occur to me that someone would keep diabetes hidden because it's such a I know so many people who live with it openly and it's just part of their lives so i don't i i I must say i don't totally understand his calculation or his hesitation there um when clearly in some social media settings or on practice courts these fans have observed this and have tracked this and have known this for a long time um and i talked other people were talking people who you know were around german junior tennis or something like that or you know other commentators who said they had known about this for a while and this used to be a more sort of open thing so i admit to some confusion there i understand yeah, it is this weird push, push and pull in this case between like understanding and appreciating and respecting his medical privacy, quote unquote, but also at the same time, this being probably relevant to him as an athlete in some level. You yeah, know, there that... are other top athletes who have this condition. I remember Bobby Clark, who's like the best Philadelphia Flyers player of all time, had diabetes. And it was sort of part of his mythos almost that like he was a super tough guy and he, but he also had this, you know, condition which made it tougher and then and also doing things on court and if you're going to be doing things on court if this is something that requires on court monitoring then yeah i do think and then it's sort of everyone knows but doesn't quite say and that's why i was you know i'm not super hesitant at this point to sort of use you know to talk about the diabetes stuff because i do feel like 
it was apparently open secret on social media and his, and yeah, and that was the weird thing also with his fans. That I didn't totally understand where they were coming from because of the one time they were dually shouting for both a privacy and how the hell do you not know he has diabetes? Everyone knows about his diabetes. Here's all the examples of diabetes. And that seemed to be a little contradictory to me that I couldn't quite figure out. But yeah, it's, it's, it, I was, I was just genuinely sort of like perplexed and intrigued by the, this dilemma of this whole situation this week. And I talked to a bunch of people about yeah, it outside I mean, tennis to kind of get their doctor friend and a diabetic friend to kind of get their feel on it. And just, yeah, I'm still not entirely sure what, what should be done in 2020 about it. It's a tough one. I mean, it, you know, but I, there's just a part of me that kind of feels like if you are and this goes to the point that you made earlier, like if you are, if your job involves your physicality, then your physicality is in play. Yeah. Like, the questions surrounding it, the state of it, um, you know, all that sort of stuff. And obviously we have, you know, HIPAA and we have like all of these, these, these healthcare rules and privacy rules regarding all of that, which we understand. But at the same time, like how do those rules interact when you are performing in a public space and you're putting your physicality on public display, you know, um, yeah. it kind of goes I like do... TUEs and stuff like that too. Exactly. No, I, I mean, I personally like, you know, like feel like all that stuff should be super transparent and super in the open. And, you know, because like, you know, if you're carrying something specific and you don't want to ever talk about it, fair play. But that becomes gambling issues that 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 implicates a lot of situations where it's like, oh, I have inside information that Sasha feels like shit. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's where I'm like, ah, I kind of feel like everything should just be in the open as much as possible. But at the same time, I absolutely understand like people wanting to keep things private. But again, you're performing publicly. I don't know. It, it's tough. Yeah, <laughs> it's it, tough. Is, it, it is tough. I just I don't I, like I said, I don't really know. Entirely yeah, I don't know how the I feel about it. it. Yeah. I've enjoyed sort of, you know, discussing with people and I've been genuinely interested in hearing other people think about it bouncing things off of them and stuff yeah because like i could see him being like i don't want to use this as an excuse especially sasha who has this you know famous history of not of underperforming in best of five matches um but but also who you know and but i was talking to one diabetic friend who knows tennis and he was saying i can imagine that'd be very tough to like manage you know levels of that over the course of a four-hour match and so maybe that is something relevant Maybe, maybe it's not i don't know but yeah just in terms of one once it's something that he's doing on court during a match, I do think that it became sort of like fair game. It was on the record at that point. Something yeah. that's sort of, that's sort of my, what I've it's landed on. To kind of have it um, and deal with it. And it's not like a public thing that you're dealing with, but once you start monitoring your, your blood sugar levels between, I mean, again, this is all alleged. I have no idea if this is actually what Sasha was doing or what, but like, I'm just saying theoretically, if you're monitoring your blood sugar between sets or like whatever, how is it not fair game then for a reporter to ask you, how did your blood sugar levels fluctuate throughout the match from set to set? Mm. If we know for a fact that you are monitoring it now, you can defer and you can say, I'm not going to answer that, but that's a totally fair question. Yeah. I think you're probably that's right. It's not an unfair question at all. And because it's that's, that's no different than like, you know, the trainer came out. What were you exactly. feeling? I was going to say it's like a medical you know, it's timeout. Same thing. It's like getting your knee yeah. taped. And you can now, now the knee becomes right. like a fair question. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, curi- it's genuinely curious to hear people's thoughts on that from this Vera fan base or not. I, you know, at, fairly quickly in this, I stopped talking about it on Twitter because it was just not getting anywhere productive. 
and people had lots of um you know various thoughts but i do think it is an interesting issue and we'll see i mean again i i hope that he's but also i mean most of all doing well with his condition but otherwise yeah for sure and but i think it's also like to the extent that the discussion is to be had i think that it is kind of the balance between kind of like yes like the zvera fans or people who feel like that's his business and it shouldn't be something that's pried into but also there's a journalistic side to this of like if i see it happen or if you know whatever like i'm allowed to ask it like i mean there's there's kind of this weird thing where i feel like sometimes fans like come oh how dare you ask about that but i saw it like of course i'm gonna ask about it and it's fair um and people then get ripped journalists for not asking other i don't know so i feel like there needs to be like an understanding or a nuance or a balance of like understanding that it is newsworthy like whether you like it or not not that it's not newsworthy like you know what i mean like, yeah, no, I get that. And I and I've learned yeah. over the course of my much time on Twitter basically that, you know, as much as I appreciate fans' feedbacks on things generally and interactions, I don't necessarily take, you know, the average non journalist fan all that, you know, seriously when they talk about what journalists should and shouldn't do. Because um, especially in any sort of journalist versus athlete divide, the fans will ninety nine times out of a hundred take the yeah, athlete side on anything. I mean, so, you know, so it's not the most useful guidepost and it's, it's something and you know, anyway, that's enough on that. But I do think it's interesting. It would be curious to hear people's feedback uh, to me or to NCR account just on, yeah, how to cover this going forward with, with Zverev and what, what happened this week. Cause it's not something he's going to, if this is indeed his condition, as it appears to be from all from overwhelming circumstantial evidence, um, then it's not something that's going to go away for him. Zverev is going away, though. Segway. Um, he's not playing Davis Cup. Uh, he is instead going on a five, I don't know, like a, a, a tour around Latin America playing Exos with Roger Federer, his new um, business partner as part of teammate after Zverev's saga of his breakup with his former manager, Patricio Ape, uh, was a big part of his distraction and his skid for the first half of his first maybe two thirds even of 20. Uh, 19. Now Zverev is with Federer and doing this whole thing after having Zverev had long forsworn the uh, Davis Cup reform. He's always saying this is my important for me to be in Maldives this time of year, uh, resting, recuperating. I don't want to play a whole, you know, start from the beginning of Davis Cup. You know, fair enough if that's what he wants to do. Now he's going and playing Exos for lots of money in Latin America, which I think can be met with eye rolls and move along at that point. Um, yeah, but Davis Cup is is starting in this new form. It will not be most of it will not be on American TV. Uh, Tennis Channel did not get the rights to this event, as people sort of assume they get the rights to everything. Uh, they did not get this one. This will be they'll be showing the American round robin ties and any progressive American ties, I believe, on Fox Sports Two, and then the final on Fox Sports Two. To which be is fair, an obscure... I turned on Tennis Channel today, Sunday, thinking that I was going to uh-huh. see the World Tour Finals final, right. and I like. Yeah. And it was a challenger, which love to yeah. hear you, Mike Cation, like not belittling that, but it wasn't what I was tuning in to see. Um, and it took me a while to like figure out where it was, which I was actually quite surprised about. No, the because the World Tour finals this week were on three different channels. It was on Tennis Channel and then ESPN2 and then today was on ESPN. And so it's, yeah, so it was a little bit tricky to find. And so this one, I don't know. Anyway, I'll, I'll just say, I mean, I'm just curious sort of, Courtney, what you... We've heard a little bit from our friend Reem Abaleo, who's on the ground in Madrid, uh, covering that for the ITF. Um, 
I don't know. What do you, what do you think New Davis Cup is going to be like in the sort of as it's its first go as its newfangled thing? And, and what do you make of the overall pretty strong player participation they're getting this year? The only real notable names out are Zverev, Medvedev of, of teams who have qualified. I'm really looking yes. forward to whatever Shakira's playlist is going to be. <laughs> I think that there's a lot that she can choose from. I'll be really bummed if she doesn't play my favorite songs, but whatever. Um, What's your favorite Shakira? I mean, I'm OG. Like, not like OG, like Spanish, but like, you know. I love I love that our mountains are humble and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I just think that we just got to wait and see. I mean, because... At the end of the day, we have no idea what we're walking into, which means that prejudging it is a fool's errand and seems like a complete waste of time. And just like, why show your cards and just be like, oh, I hate this thing. Like, you don't know. You don't know. And you don't know until it's done. So I'm curious to see how the, the how this first edition kind of goes. Uh, weird to see hardcore tennis at the Caja Magica. That'll mm-hmm. be kind of a, a different vibe. Um, and just weird to, I, I mean, I just genuinely don't really have a sense as to like what it'll be like to be covering, not covering, but following simultaneous ties and things like that. And do you only care about the group? Because we only, like, it. in other words, like, is the ITF and, and Cosmos assuming that people only care about their country? So people will only follow like group A or group E or group C or group D, in which case it doesn't seem onerous. Or do people like actually care about broader than that? And then it becomes like a completely unmanageable situation, Um, which I guess is no different than a tournament. Right. Yeah. Um, So I get that. Yeah, no, I get that. So all that is to say, like, I don't really have an opinion on it at all. Um, at the moment, I don't think that having players play the ATP players be playing after everything in November, mid-November, for a week is a good idea. I think that's just a bad idea timing-wise. Um, you're not going to get the best tennis. Um, you're going to impact their training schedules for the following season. I just don't like it. I mean, if you want this format, but you want to put it at a different time of the season, then that makes more sense to me. Yeah, like the Fed will be in April. Yeah. Yeah, and then when it comes to like little things like points and qualifications and all these sorts of things, like I, you know, I mean, my opinions of those things, I think if you listen to this podcast are pretty clear. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I'm inclined to say like wait and see, but um that being said, on November 17th, I am less inclined to be tuning into 7 days of tennis than I would be in April. So yeah. I'm not entirely convinced that having said everything that I've said about let's wait and see and let's just watch it before we make an uh, opinion that I'm going to be watching it before I take an, take an opinion. I can't I can't guarantee that's yeah. going to happen. Ever since this reform was announced, my main and really only problem with it was the November part. I mean, if the, I always had thought that April was the perfect sweet spot time to put an event like this in the tennis calendar. And I was really happy that Fed Cup did just that. And found that sweet spot between the American swing, uh, the you know spring American swing, and the European clay swing between hard courts and clay courts. It leaves a lot of flexibility, um, and players are still in a relatively okay space physically in April. Um, yeah, so this November thing, I think Davis Cup probably does not want to stick out November in the long term. Um, but for now, you know, I hope that it does well. Generally, rooting for tennis, um, and and I think I think this sort of World Cup format will be good. I think that one of the weaknesses with Davis Cup in the old way. 
was that it kept losing momentum with having months and months between rounds. Like a team would win, you know, a quarterfinal in April and then have to wait five months before their semifinal. And it's like, is that even the same competition at that point when you're waiting this long between? So um, I, I like the idea of Davis Cup holding the tennis world's rapt attention for one week as being the main event and then kind of going away. Um, and so I hope that'll work out well for them this time. Yeah, TBD on how they do. Tough to know before you actually start watching the event. Yeah, I mean, hope it, I hope it. Uh, I hope it goes well. You know, you don't yeah. want to see an event like that with such investment and for all the changes and everything. You don't want to see it fail. I mean, that's not that shouldn't be the reaction of like, oh, I don't like this thing. I hope it fails. No, I mean, this is the thing as it exists now. It's gotten incredible investment. It's gotten a lot of buy in from the players. I've been very yeah. impressed by the players that they've been able to secure to play. Um, so, you know, let's play the tennis and see how it pans out. And they actually kind of got lucky in a weird way that the World Tour Finals this year, the final of the World Tour Finals, was between Team and Sitsipas, two players who were not qualified for the Davis Cup Finals. So, um, ah, not, yeah, okay. Sure that. yeah. So that's a little bit sideways good luck. Um, yeah. Uh, so, shifting away from the dudes, Courtney, we have not talked about um, any of your wild latest swing of WT Asia adventures. Uh, how was your... How was your long trip to to Asia this time great. around, and what did you what did you see on court? Let's start with it that most you'll most remember from the 2019 WT Asia swing. Yeah, I mean it, it was uh, it was another good swing. I mean it's I don't think I've ever made it a secret. It, it's one of my it's it is my favorite kind of swing of the season. Um, uh, going through through China, um, just because the the hospitality is great, the people are great. Um, it's interesting as a traveler being there, so I always really enjoy my time there. So I was in Wuhan and then Beijing, um, and then went to Japan to visit my family, and then came home for a week, uh, and then flew back for Zhuhai and Shenzhen, uh, which was great. Um, it was lovely that the two tournaments at the end were switched as everybody wanted with Zhuhai coming first and then Shenzhen yeah. finally being the year-end championships, although it created... Do you feel that worked better this year? Um, yes and no. I mean, yes. I mean, obviously it does. It did. Um, but I remember speaking about it with a few people uh, in Zhuhai and in Shenzhen. Like, it was kind of weird because Zhuhai, from a practical perspective, was a lovely way to finish your season. Like... I would already obviously been stressed out from the year-end finals because obviously that's a, a massive tournament for the WTA and there's a lot going on in terms of sponsor deliverables and things like that. So having that like 10 days in what was like Singapore the last few years was a lot. And then to then though go from there and go straight to Zhuhai and kind of like detox and decompress and talk to players you really, at least for myself, like I really always loved the Zhuhai field. Like, it's always, like, my kind of, like, the players that I've been rooting for, you know, throughout the year. They're not necessarily the top players, but they're players who have made moves or yeah. were top players who were trying to make moves but were struggling. It's, yeah. it's a very compelling group of 12. Yeah. So I really like Zhuhai. So in that way, it was a little weird to, like, finish in Shenzhen and kind of have this, like, lead up in Zhuhai. But it was fine. I mean, it was good. Um, but overall, yeah, it was a really, really um, – I thought – more compelling Asian swing than it necessarily has been in the past, mainly because I think that um, 
you know, Sabalenka being able to defend in Wuhan was like a really, really big story. And then obviously she she won Zhuhai as well. So she kind of carried that momentum, which is massive because I think that a lot of us were, including Arena, would say that like her season was very disappointing. Um, but she she had those two results and basically ends up like right outside the top 10, I think, um, which is massive for her. Um, I think that Naomi Osaka's season or uh, tournament in Beijing was phenomenal. Um, and it was mm-hmm. actually probably um, the most interesting week for me um, of the entire China swing because, you know, you had that series of matches that you hadn't seen yet. So Osaka versus Bianca and Bianca had been. That was the big one. That was yeah. a big one. It was Bianca's first tournament since the U.S. Open as well. So that was a big one. And then Ash versus Barty. Um, or sorry, <laughs> Naomi versus Barty uh, in the final, which was also massive because you hadn't seen that since they had both kind of like emerged as who they are now. Yeah. Um, so for Naomi to kind of like buckle down and do that and to, you know, to back up her title run in Osaka was really massive. Um, and to for her to kind of like be able to say like, hi, like I'm still effectively, I'm putting words in her mouth, but I'm still the alpha here. Like, I won the Australian Open and y'all were like, woo, like, you know, back to back slams, like, oh, she's the future. And then Bianca won India Wells. I lost a few weeks before that and split with Sasha in the Middle East. And y'all were like, ah, panic. And I don't defend India Wells. I lose to Benchich. And you guys are like all about Bianca after that. And you're basically about Bianca throughout the rest of the season. And Ash wins on clay. You guys are crapping on me for not doing well on clay where I've never done well and not doing well on grass where I've never done well. And then hard courts, I do pretty well. You guys are still ignoring me, like still ignoring me. And then like Asian swing, she basically <laughs> tears through it. Like I really loved like the Naomi vibe because she really, that was the vibe she was giving off of kind of like, especially once she got through the, through those first few matches in Beijing and kind of knew that she was going to be able to play Bianca and knew that Ash was looming. It was like a very different Naomi where she was trying to make a statement. Um uh, both to probably more to everybody else, but maybe a little bit to herself as well. Like I'm still yeah. here. So that was like really compelling and I appreciated it. I was bummed that she had to like pull out of uh, Shenzhen because I thought she played really, really well to beat Petra in the first round. But yeah, no, uh, otherwise great Ash being Ash. I've been high on Ash throughout the season. I was really, really happy for her to be able to, to cap things off the way that she did uh, winning Shenzhen. And uh, yeah, no, that was, that was WT Asia. Yeah, I mean, I tuned because I, the time differences, which are pretty massive between Washington and the Asian swing. I watched sort of I tuned in and out of the Asian swing. But one of the weeks I did watch a lot of was Osaka, um, where Osaka won in Osaka as a sort of possibly one time chance to do that. And that was a really fun week to see her do that and to see her being coached encore by her dad for the first time during this swing and their vibe together, which was like super interesting dynamic and she was really open and honest with him and they just like they're he was very chill the whole time i really enjoyed that dynamic after we should mention he split she split with uh her coach uh jenkins after the u.s open shortly after that um yeah and and seeing her back that up in asia and this the bianca versus osaka match really felt very blockbuster that was like the match everyone would want to see this year and then party delivered that too yeah, I agree. And then yeah. especially, and then so I think we kind of got in Beijing, thankfully, in retrospect, what we did not want up getting in 
Shenzhen because of both Osaka and Bianca pulling out of that tournament, which kind of was, was an anticlimax to end on for those storylines and those really compelling players this year. But Barty still stepped up and won the title. And I think after, especially in retrospect, looking back at Paris, like realizing how that draw really did implode around her, um, I thought it was great for Ash to get like a really high level, you know, all top tenors in the field type title. In Shenzhen, not that she was, you know, at all number one with an asterisk per se, but I thought, I bet that meant a lot to her to get it to, to beat that many top players, you know, in a row, and do that um, in well, a tournament I like mean, that. Which, to be fair, yeah. I mean, she she did the same thing in Miami. I mean, she beat Petra, she beat Carolina, she had like right, but she wasn't like the number there. one at that point. No, I'm she saying, wasn't, like, but like, she knew that she could do that. I mean, I agree with you in terms of Paris. I mean, things broke open, you know, massively for her. I mean, it, it's not. Um, obviously what Simona did in, in Wimbledon was different because she had to actually beat like Serena the way that she did in the final. But up until that point, I mean, Simona's draw had broken up, broken pretty nicely for her as well. But like for both, it's interesting for, for, it's interesting for both of those players, like Simona and Ash to like win the titles that they thought they would probably never win. Like those were like Ash yeah. winning at Roland Garros was like, what? And Simona winning Wimbledon beating Serena in the final, what? Like, yeah, I mean, I she'd mean, already been a semifinalist there, but like, still, um, that sets things up quite nicely for them. But like, but I agree with you in terms of Ash being able to do it in Shenzhen meant a lot. But I still think that like for her doing what she did in M- Miami still is like a massive like thing in her head, even if like maybe people were not paying attention to her as much then because she wasn't like a top ten player as much then. Well, what I would say is that on Simona, first of all, I think she did have a toughish Wimbledon draw because she had to play both Azarenka and Golf, who was like a hot player at that point, and Sasnovich for a draw. Like her draw and, you know, she, and Buzernescu, like her draw was, I think, significantly tougher all along the way than Ashes in Paris. The first thing I'll say. The second thing I'd say is I just meant more for like the number one status because I would have to look back at this, but I believe, and I actually don't know the answer to this. But before Ash won Shenzhen, I think it had been a super long time since a W10 number one won a tournament. Like, the active number one won a title. It's just not something that has happened that much lately, ever since, really, since Serena um, stopped being number one. Yeah, probably true. Because Kerber, Kerber, when she got number one, really started struggling pretty much right then. Osaka, once she got to number one, was, you know, in February, and that was a spell for her, so... And and Barty missed it by a week because she got number one right after winning Birmingham. Um, so just like it was a kind of like alpha type performance that I feel like we have not seen a lot on the tour lately. Being a number one, going in there, being quote unquote expected to win on paper and actually winning, yeah, especially she, at a tournament of the caliber of that, you know, I was impressed by. Yeah, I think she was the first number one and reigning slam champion to win since Serena. Yeah, that sounds the, right. The, the WTA yeah. finals since Serena won in whatever, 14, 15, the first year of Sing- of Singapore. And it's just um, tough to tell yourself that should be remarkable, the number one winning a tournament, but it's just like it's not something that's happened as much lately. Right, no, it, 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 you're absolutely right on that. So, um, But there was kind of this sense of inevitability about, about Shenzhen, like kind of being there and with Ash, and even after she kind of choked that, that, that second uh, round-robin match against Kiki Burton's, and Burton's played great and, and adjusted really, really well to kind of like force Ash to come up with something different, but Ash just kind of panicked. It was a very weird match for her, but for her to re- be able to rebound from that and play well, like it, it really felt even in going into the final, even though you were like, well, 
I mean, Svitolina on this court, defending champion, win streak, you know, all these sorts of things and how badly she wants to win a title. Maybe it's Svitolina's. There was still a sense of like, no, like Ash is just that good now. Like, you know, like even her, you know, C, C minus game is enough to, to get it done. And I think that that's what makes her quite special compared to probably the, the string of number ones that we've had, you know, since Serena. Um, is that Ash can win without playing well. And I feel like mm. maybe with Naomi, that wasn't, we didn't, we don't necessarily believe that as as much or have as much confidence in it. Simona um, as well. Kerber. Kerber. Yeah. But like, I feel like since Serena, we haven't had a player who like, you just kind of, I don't know, like had that confidence of like, even if she started the match and she wasn't playing great, she'd figure it out. Um, and there's something about that that I think maybe with Ash makes her, like less compelling to people because there is kind of this sense of like, oh, she'll sort it out. So there's kind of this dramatic tension that doesn't exist in her matches in the same way that like maybe like Simona or Naomi or even Angie or even Carolina or Garbina had. Yeah. I don't know. I but th- like, I think Ash doesn't have that kind of like chaos head case thing that so no, many past W tape thing players have had as their reputation like she's just like very much like and that's what sort of made her friendship and match against anisimova in the semifinals like very off-brand for ash that was match was so all over the place that was like not an ash party type match at all usually feel like you're like she has a very firm grip on the wheel and will do what she's supposed to do and the other player will be able to beat her or not beat her and her coach craig tizer in shenzhen was asked you know uh, you know about the the run in paris and he said the semifinal of 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 Roland Garros is a match that you know a few months before that Ash loses like she would not have been able to sort herself out and you know but that was the match that completely shifted her season was being able to get that win over Anisimova which is like what but I mean I think all of us thought Ash was going to lose that match like after she blew it and and kind of choked away yeah. that's you know like everybody's like oh yeah Anisimova was making the final and and for her to kind of buckle down but yeah no I agree with you 100% I actually, I do think, and I think I've said this to you before, but I do think, like, if Anissa Mova's career progresses as we think it will, like, I do think people will look back at the 2019 French Open as one that got away for Anissa Mova, which is totally ridiculous to say about a 17-year-old. But, like, man, she was close to in that tournament. If she, if if, if Fontrocheva plays the way in the final that she did against Barty against Anissa Mova, um, yeah, that was, yeah, that was, that, was, that was a wild tournament. Was That's a lot of ifs, but we, I mean, I, very, I do... Very weird tournament. I do think that like it's it's the opposite. If Anissa Mova's career doesn't turn out the way that we think that it will, oh, then maybe. people will look back to the 2019 French Open and be like, "Uh." But if she like goes on to win like four or five slams, like nobody's going to think about that. <laughs> you I'm know what sure I mean? Been, I'm not sure if you've ever been in any of the press conferences with Serena where she talks about it, but Serena Arantxa? still seeds about yes, about yeah, Arantxa, she, can, she cannot French get over Open. it <laughs> when she was 16. The overhead. Like, oh, <laughs> The one that got away from me. And it was yeah. like, that was your second slam you ever played. She's so mad about it. deserved to win that tournament. She's so mad about it still. It's great. I love Serena, it. Serena being, having the low-key long-term memories. <laughs> Wonderful. And also, I'm very glad she enjoyed um, the Popeye's chicken sandwich on her Insta story, as I recently enjoyed one in my neighborhood as well. I have I yet they, to have it. I need to get fun. it. It's, so I will say, like, it doesn't have a ton of, like, flavor or sauce. So, like, I wanted, I got the spicy one. It doesn't have the kick? Not a ton of kick, but but I think you can get that probably. There's probably some like hot sauce packet or something. But their actual fried chicken has kick. 
That's why I'm surprised. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe it was. I was almost wondering if I got the one that wasn't spicy by accident or something. I don't know, but I ordered the spicy. But like the texture of the of like the breading and the chicken patty, that whole thing is spectacular. I mean, you know how I feel about Chick Fil A. Well, I know you don't like breast meat, also. Right. Yes, but also I just don't think that it's a very good like. I this get, is better. I don't, I don't think it's Chick-fil-A. good. Like I don't think yeah. the Chick Fil A chicken sandwich is delicious. Like irrespective of anything, like I would. I would order a McDonald's McChicken before I ordered a Chick-fil-A. Like, there's never been an instance where I've had the Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. It was like, oh, I get the hype. Don't get it. So I'm very excited to try the Popeye's one because I love a good chicken sandwich, man. Yeah. What's the like? You know, Um, low-key, really good chicken sandwich? Carl's Jr. We don't have those up here. Oh, okay. The Carl's Jr. chicken, uh, like crispy chicken ranch sandwich? Sounds tasty. Oh, fucking unbelievable. Got me through college. My go-to, my go-to chicken Tremendous. sandwich is the Wendy's spicy chicken sandwich. That's Your go-to like. anything is Wendy's. We all know that. But, yep, you know. Yep, that's, my, yep, that's my brand. I respect it. I respect it. Um, speaking of brands that are doing well for themselves, <laughs> Sophia Cannon. <laughs> uh, good segue. Good Sophia segue. Cannon had a great 2019. I don't think we talked about it much on the show, but, like, because she didn't have a, a – well, she beat Serena at the French Open. That was her big major result. But – um, she finished the year at number 14, this competition for the, uh, women's four single spots for the U S women in, for the Tokyo Olympics is going to be brutal because I think currently number five is Ash, is Allison risk. I want to say who's like number 20 and would not currently get in. Cause it's she like five just or top. four. Oh, maybe she's four. She's me, four. Oh, no, it's this. Serena, uh, uh, oh, she Maddie, Kenan. Yeah, she's ahead of Sloan for sure. And then Risk. Sloan's okay, well, five. Sloan, okay, so Sloan. Oh, Sloan is six. Who's so right ahead now, of Sloan? It is oh, Anisimova. Yeah. So right now, yeah. So number one, Serena at 10. So really none of the top nine, but then it gets pretty clustered. For those who don't know, and at that, the Olympics, the top four from a country within the top, yeah. like the qualifying, qualified. For yeah, for singles. Yeah. So Max, you could Max be. Four per country. So you could be within like the top, like whatever, 52, 56 in the rankings, which is should get you direct in. But for certain countries, like it used to be Russia, the Czechs, and the US, like if you could be within the cutoff and you still would not qualify for the Olympics. And it might, it, it's not going to be an issue, I think, with the Russians as much anymore. And the Czechs might yeah. be less as well. But for the US, it's freaking nuts like where the cutoff for the u.s team could be in the top 20 like i'm looking at daniel collins who's the u.s number seven at number 31 and thinking like she has no shot of making olympics which is crazy yeah it's true because she has so, the the well, final yeah off, because yeah. that's the thing is like a lot the thing that's gonna make it crazy for the u.s is that a lot of the players who um are in the top four or five have their points backloaded yeah but not right. Anisimova, though. She has her French Open points coming off at the deadline. Is that the deadline? Is French Open? Yeah, it's the oh, Monday it used to be a... French Open. It's, oh, because no, it's, it's later. French Open. Yeah. So that's, been, it... that's been the last few cycles, been French Open. But yeah. Oh, I just I remember for Roland Garros, it was the Monday after, or sorry, Rome one year. It was like the, for London, maybe. It was like, anyways. I'm not sure. Anyways. Anyway. Yeah. It's gonna, anyway, all this to say, Sophia Kennan, we have not talked that much in this group. Um, she, yeah, her year was like low key. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Like what? I mean, she, I feel like she's somebody and I don't know because 
of the like super superlative performances of like Andrescu. I don't know if Sophia Kennan will like get a WTA year end award, but she certainly deserves to. I mean, what she's done this year is pretty pretty nuts. I'm just gonna pull it up one second. Her year. I mean, just her just her making finals. She uh, made four WTA finals this year, won three of them, winning in Hobart, uh, losing the final of Acapulco, winning the final of Mallorca, and winning Guangzhou. So those are all international level tournaments. But she was somebody who was a factor making semis at both uh, Canada and Cincinnati. She beat summer. Serena. She just, beat Ash. Uh, she beat no- Ash and, in, in Canada. And she does this like being somebody who I would describe game wise as being like someone with who's like fairly she's small. She's like probably like five, six or so. And she's does not somebody who has like a particularly imposing weapon, but she is like such an unreal competitor. She's a great competitor, great backhand. Yeah. Like what she can do with her backhand is is pretty impressive in terms of the the angle. But even if you take like the summer and obviously Great first half of the season, won two titles, Hobart, and, and, and like you said, in Mallorca, beat Serena to knock her out in, in decisive fashion at Roland Garros. Then heads over to Rogers Cup, beats Shea Suwei, Ash Barty, Diana Yastrzemska, and Alina Svitolina, and then loses in straight sets to Andrescu. And then a week later, beats Gerges, Diaz, Svitolina again, beats Osaka. She was like back-to-back number one wins. Um, in back-to-back weeks, it was, I remember yeah. looking up the stat, but it had been a long time since somebody did that in terms of yeah. beating a number one in back-to-back weeks. Yeah. Um, and then lost to Maddie Keys. Um, I mean, it, it was, I mean, when you look at the scalps that she got this year, it was really, really, really impressive. I mean, wins over Mertens, over Pavlychenkova, like, you know, those stoppers, those players that you just think are like, you know, you, you gotta be quality to beat them. Um, she took care of them pretty easily. She bageled Garbina Muguruza in the first round um, in China Open, beat Pavlychenkova again, beat uh, Risk in Zhuhai, and it was a really tight match against Fidelina in um, in uh, Shenzhen. So I- I'm just really impressed by her. She's intense. She's an incredible competitor. You know, the other American players will kind of like kind of have this look in their their eye when you ask them about her. I'm just kind of like, well, you know, we know like what she's like and um not in a bad way like they all really like her but she's she's american putensive in a way not in a disrespectful yeah. way but just like super fiery and, and she brings it yeah super yeah. intense and you kind of almost have to block it out for fear of it like kind of taking over and she's one of the few players this year that beat bianca andrescu in a straight up match in the yeah. semifinals of uh, acapulco no, and you saw that intensity with the match with Serena at the French Open, where right. um, where where Kennan never once looked daunted by Serena being across the court and was like doing these things, you know, circling a lot of marks really aggressively, <laughs> just being sort of you know marching around, <laughs> strutting around. Was, and, her and strut the crowd is crowd like all star. Yeah, her <laughs> strut like, is all star like, though. But like the lack of fucks to give from Sonia Kennan, <laughs> I find really aspirational and beautiful. And um, I, yeah, I, I just I, I just celebrate her. her. I celebrate. Yeah, it. totally. And I, I, I think like you know, I it all seems to come from like a, like a really sort of pure place within yes. her. She's even such a is, sweet even kid. If, even if it manifests itself in kind of like goofily competitive ways sometimes, where you just sort of like sort of shake your head and go, "Oh, there she goes again." This sort of like very like knowing smile that I have in my face with Kenan. So anyway, it's good to say. And it's like it's an interesting year for women's tennis in the U.S. because 
basically. This is a segue too. Like I feel like Kenan did not get talked about that much after the French Open win against Serena. Nisimova didn't get talked about that much compared to her breakout run making a slam semifinal. But someone who did get talked a lot, and I don't mean this to be a diss to her at all, because uh, I think I'm not saying she didn't deserve it, is Coco Golf, um, who won since we last talked, won her first WTA title in Linz as a lucky loser beating Ostapenko in the final. Ostapenko now coached by Marion Bartoli, by the way. Very into that pairing. Um, yeah. What do you make, Courtney, of the Coco Goff glow-up that we've seen since she really stepped onto the scene at Wimbledon as a qualifier and now is going to be direct into the... As a wild card into qualifying, I'll add. So I'm ranked like 300-ish. And now she's going to be direct into the Australian Open after winning Linz. I mean, this has been something we have not seen for a long time in women's tennis with a 15 year old doing this sort of stuff. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that she deserves everything that she's getting and, you yeah. know, I mean, she, I mean, to win Linz, uh, as a lucky loser was great, um, to do what she's done, you know, at the slams when she has played amazing, even on the doubles court as well with Katie McNally. What did they got two titles mm-hmm. now already? Yeah. They won, they won Linz and they won, or Luxembourg? they won one of the, they won one of the fall titles, and they won Washington also. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I mean, it, clearly the kid is is talented. Um, you know, watching her, the biggest thing that impresses is just her poise and her competitive instincts, which are again uh, astounding for somebody fifteen years old. I mean, that being said, I mean not to 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 rain on anybody's parade, but when she has come up against elite competition, she has been blown out. Um, yeah. Simona Halep took her apart at Wimbledon and then Naomi Osaka took her apart at the U.S. Open. Um, and I think that sometimes where I get a little bit frustrated or worried is that the hype machine blows past those results, that the hype machine starts to talk about her as though she is, you know, uh, because she won Linz and, you know, made two, what, second weeks or uh is, fourth round, third round, fourth yeah. Round, third, she made third round, round okay. U.S. Open, yeah, yeah. But like you know, things like that. That oh, she's she's the next big thing. Well, especially when you're talking about U.S. women's tennis, she is in line to be the next big thing. I mean, this is a season, like you said, Ben, that saw you know Anisimova make a semifinal, and and as you said before, like really, she probably should have won, should have made the final, and could have won Roland Garros. Yeah. Um, we see Sophia Kennan putting up results week after week after week. Um, being the second alternate into Shenzhen. Um, you know, Ali Risk, who's in, you know, yes. good running for most improved this season, I think. Um, I think there's oh, a really my vote for sure. Yeah, she's yeah. she's there's a really good argument for her. Um, you know, making the Wuhan final and beating, you know, top quality players, giving Serena a run for her money at Wimbledon. Um, these are the players and, and Madison Keys winning two titles for the first time in her career in a season, which nobody remembers, but it, yeah. It, yeah. Charleston and Cincinnati. Exactly. So that's what we're talking about. And then obviously Serena making two major finals, um, you know, and, and so Coco's there and there's so much to talk to, to like about her. She's so cool to talk to. I love the kid, but there is always going to be a little bit of the per- paternalistic side of me that is wants so badly to pull back and and to resist the hype machine as much as possible just to give her space to fail because i think that you know at this point given her incredible results in the second half of the season this year there will be all this expectation that she's going to do nothing but succeed in 2020 and maybe she will and that will be an amazing story 
But I, for one, myself, I don't feel like I need to be somebody that predicts that. Like, I don't need to be somebody to be like, oh, at the end of 2019, I absolutely expected Coco. I, I, I told everybody I thought Coco Golf was going to be top 20. Like, no, I'm cool being like, I don't know. Like, yeah, we'll see. I to- I totally agree. I feel uncomfortable setting the bar anywhere near even remotely high for her because this time next year, she'll only be 16. <laughs> and so <laughs> uh, it's true. So, I mean, uh, yeah, she like if she does not break top 50 next year and like roughly holds her uh, 80s ish something like great. That's amazing. amazing you can stay in the top amazing you could stay in the top 100 for a season with like more targets on you that's incredible even if she slips like 120 like she'll be the youngest player in the top 150 i'm pretty sure great for you like you know like i I, yeah i I would set the bar so incredibly low that all she could do is trip over it and you know like it's yeah i i i am not at all and that's one of the tough things for like i know this was an issue with you know people bring up this name all the time but like capriati like capriati was it was not when she was first coming on tour that it got tougher for her. It got tougher for her when she'd been on tour for like only like two or three years and hadn't won a slam yet. People were saying, or made a final yet, and she was like only seventeen. And already yeah. at that point, it was like, what you know, what tick, 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 tock. Come on, Jennifer, where's your slam now? Um, and yes, I don't. I think well, we should. And, yeah, and I, this and is I, not. The, I just think yeah, it's more about how we handle the disappointments for Coco that I think is important. Right. And, and you're right. And you're right. And not being selective about how we assess her and taking account of the low data points too. Right. I mean, and that's the thing is, is, is just giving her the room to fail and, and being like failure is expected because what you're trying to do is incredibly difficult because like, obviously we see that we see, you know, players who, um, you know, like Ben's heard my spiel and, and shtick about this a gazillion times, but you know, you think of any young player in the last like decade and every single one of them has struggled to do what Coco Goff is is doing. And so either we sit there and we say Coco Goff is freaking, you know, Captain Marvel and Wonder Woman all rolled into one. Like she's a superhero. Or she is like every other young prodigy that we got really, really excited about. And every single one of them, whether you look at Belinda Benchich, who basically broke her body, uh, Cece Bellis broke her body. Um, Anna Kanya. Anna Kanya. We've barely seen her on, on the pro tour. Um, you know, Bianca, who's, you know, 19 years old. I mean, 1920, and she's still struggling to keep her body healthy. It's been very rare. Ash Barty, like, mentally could not deal with the the grind of the tour and walked away for two years. This is common. Like, that. that is what is par for the course. So I want to get excited about Akoko because I like her a lot. Like, she's just lovely. Like, in every, I can't say enough wonderful things about her as a person. Um, and I would love to buy into this... Um, this uh, line that gets touted a lot, whether it's by agents or coaches or pundits or whoever of like, she's different, that she's more mature, that her parents are cool, that she's not going to, but like, I don't know. I've seen, I mean, the road to WTA success is littered by broken bones, like left and right. And it takes time to do it. So you know, percentage wise, I'm going to back the idea that it's going to take her some time to, you know, reach those heights, especially at a time when the game is so unbelievably physical and it takes a woman's body to to kind of get through a 10 month season. But 
I am perfectly happy for her to prove me wrong. And I am perfectly happy to eat crow, you know, at the end of the 2020 season when Coco Goff is a three-time major champion and Olympic gold medalist and be like, whoops, totally got me. I totally misread that situation, but I would rather be wrong with that than be wrong about, oh, I thought she was going to be awesome. And, you know, our expectations have basically destroyed a 16-year-old kid like that. Mm. I don't want to be on that side of the coin. So that's where I fall on it. There we go. Thank you for listening to episode 236A of No Challenges Remaining, which was the first half of my conversation with Courtney. Stay tuned in a few days for 236B, which will be the second half of our lengthy conversation we had on such topics as Margaret Court, Kim Kleisters, Thomas Burditch, Dominica Sibylkova, blocking people on Twitter and other fun things. Bye, guys. Lucky for my